Great to be here today. Uh, Galatians is one of, if not my favorite, book of the Bible. So this was uh, this was actually a lot of uh, I don't know fun is the right word. It was very helpful to me just putting it together. And um, we have way too much to cover today. We're going to be in Galatians four, by the way. If you want to go ahead and turn there, we're going to look at verses one through eleven. Um, way too much to get through in one day, but so I had to remind myself, and I want to remind you quickly that. Uh, the goal of, the, of being together this morning, and any Sunday morning, is to remind one another, celebrate, worship God for what He's done for us through Jesus Christ. And so that's what I hope to do this morning. And so I can't go into every story, every example, every quote I wanted to share with you, and this resource to point you to. I just, I just don't have time. And so uh, help me, make me feel better uh, <laughs> by speeding through this or having to cut so much out by uh, letting me say... Don't let this time be the only time each week you're in God's Word. Um, you'll be very malnourished if you only eat once a week, right? And so, don't let Sundays be the only time you're growing roots into God's Word. Um, there's the parable of the sower, and Jesus talks about those that fell on rocky ground have no roots in the Word. So when hard times came because of the Word, they stumbled. Um, so, use, uh, grow deep roots now. In God's word, so that when the drought comes, your roots will be deep enough to keep you from stumbling. And so, all that to say, um, let's uh, let's jump in here, Galatians four one through eleven. I'm going to read through it, and I'll uh, pray for us, and then we're just going to walk through this. And uh, it's a great passage. So, read with me in Galatians four. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave. Though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather, to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Pray with me one more time. Uh, God, I thank you for your word. Thank you... Um, just for this time, set aside each week to study it together and worship you through it. Pray you would help us do that. Give us understanding of uh, what you want uh, us to know through this passage and how to apply it to our lives. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we're going to walk back through this uh, sentence by sentence, which won't necessarily be verse by verse. As you know, the verses, chapters and verses were added later. Uh, this was all one letter written by Paul. And so the first sentence here is actually verses 1 and 2. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different than a slave, though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. Many of you, most of us probably have kids or had kids grown now, but uh, they're the, as the saying goes, the apple of your eye, right? Well, what happens when that eye that has an apple in it, what happens when you turn that away for a couple minutes? Anything like ours, the, the house explodes. We have these little explosions around our house, right? If we go to the other room for uh, just a few seconds. And so, <laughs> and so we know this. Uh, it, you know, Samantha and I went this afternoon and just left the boys at the house. 
by themselves, what would happen? Well, number one, the house probably wouldn't be standing somehow uh, by the time we got back. And then she and I would be in serious legal trouble, right? Um, but so we know this. We know, and Paul's making the comparison that he knows we'll understand. Uh, we have to have guardians, something to keep us under somewhat control. Um, the problem is we can't do what the law requires. So the Paul's talk, Paul is talking, saying that the law is our guardian um, until the time set by his father. And we'll get to that in a minute. But uh, So the law requires us to be holy, right? God says, be holy for I am holy. We can't do that. So for, for example, one of the best ways I've heard this put is, well, let me back up. Growing up, um, I played baseball since I could walk. I loved baseball. Um, a little later on, I picked, tried to pick up basketball, and I realized how much you had to run, and so I stopped basketball. Uh, in high school, I played football, um, never broke a bone, never had any injuries, just had a lot of fun. And uh, so I got to college and began playing intramural sports. And of all things, playing flag, intramural flag football, I broke my hand, 18, 19 years old. So I was going to try to be tough and just ignore it, right? And y'all have seen those those uh, surgical gloves or the, y'all know what I'm talking about. You, you blow them up and it looks like a cow's udder or a balloon with stink finger. That's about what my hand looked like a couple days later. And so after a few hours of trying to type a term paper with what was more like a paw than a hand, I said, okay, let's, uh, let's go to the doctor here. And so <clears throat> drove myself over to the doctor and what did they do? They said, okay, let's take you back, take some x-rays. Let's, let's find out what's going on. So what does that x-ray do? It diagnoses the problem. Hey, I got a problem here. My hand looks like a paw instead of a hand. What's going on? They say, well, let's, let's get under the skin. Let's see what's going on underneath there. Let's find out what's wrong. And that's what they did. Um, that's what x-rays are for. That's what they do. That's their job. Same with MRIs or any other scan. Here's the problem. That x-ray, if they had said, okay, thanks for coming in today. We'll see you. I would have left knowing I have a broken hand and walked out with a broken hand, right? And if nothing else had happened, if we had stopped there, I would still have a messed up hand probably. So what do they do? They send me to the doctor, and the doctor mashes and pushes on my very sore hand to get it back where it's supposed to be, and then puts a cast on it for however many weeks. But that's essentially what the law does, right? Uh, it tells us what's wrong, gets under the skin and say, hey, here's the problem. But the law, that's all it can do. All it, all it can do is, here's the problem. The law in and of itself, which is what Paul is telling us, cannot fix the problem. It shows us that we are broken in the severity of our problem, but it has no power to solve the problem. And so, not to spoil the ending here, but I hope you already know, uh, Christ is the only one that can solve our brokenness. Um, so we try to convince ourselves that we're really not that bad, things really aren't that bad. But really, when we compare ourselves to the law, Paul says we become enslaved to it because we just can't keep it, and we know that. And so we either kind of ignore the problem or get beat down by it, sometimes both in the same day. Um, Paul says, that, and I'm going to mention Romans a few times today. Uh, Romans and Galatians kind of overlap a lot in what, what is discussed anyway. But in Romans 3, Paul says, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So Paul is saying in Romans 2, the point of the law is so that we know how sinful we are. It's a diagnostic tool. 
I'm already skipping stuff here. I timed myself a couple times, and it was really long, so I, I promise I'll skip a few things. I really don't want to, but I'm going to. Uh, <laughs> okay. Verse 3. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. As I was first reading through this and just kind of jotting a few things down, one thing that stood out to me is Paul is saying, when we, in the same way, when we were children, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Paul and the Galatians had very different upbringings. So I, find it, I found it interesting that Paul is saying, there's some debate, um, some not real clear on who's we. Is he talking about them or is he talking about the Galatians? But either way, the point is the same. Paul is lumping his upbringing as a very traditional Jew with the Galatians upbringing, which was very different. Uh, most likely false religion, even maybe some demonic uh, demon worship type stuff. Um, so why would he do this? Why would he kind of put those things together and say, hey, we're all enslaved to the elementary principles of this world. They had very different backgrounds. Why would he say this? Well, number one, we already know this. The Galatians are drifting that way, right? They're drifting towards, yes, I know that Jesus is how you're saved, but then you got to start, or whatever, or else you got to kind of start looking Jewish, or else maybe it won't work. You got to eat the right, remember Peter's kind of, not eating in certain times when certain people are around. They're trying to get them to be circumcised. They're basically saying you have to look like a Jew to prove that you're a Christian, or to make sure you're a Christian, rather. So number one, he's addressing that, hey, that isn't what saves you. That is an elementary principle of the world, just like your former way of life. And the other is, is sin is sin. It doesn't really matter what it looks like um, or how religious it might look. We might be full-blown hedonist, I do what makes me feel good. We're saying I don't need God, right, when we do that. Or maybe it's a false religion or maybe it's the right religion, but we're, we're still putting our hope in ourselves or self-righteousness, which is essentially saying I don't need God. One says I don't want anything to do with God. Self-righteousness says I don't need God. I can, I can get there on my own. I'm good enough. And so this is big in our culture. Um, this is really big that Paul is putting these two things together or compare, at least comparing them as and saying they're essentially the same. They work out the same way in the end. Now, we all know and probably thinking, you know, I, I'm going to teach my boys right from wrong. I hope, right? That's the goal. <laughs> I, hope, I hope you do that too. But knowing right from wrong doesn't make you more savable, right? Salvation is a complete miracle worked by God. And more on that in a minute. Paul is saying that the Jewish law, the worship of demons, no religion whatsoever... There's all elementary principles of the world. It's where we go by our sin nature. Um, and so if it's not trusting in Jesus, we might as well be whatever else you want to call it. Well, that's, that's really hard for us <laughs> because art is so ingrained in our culture to be a good person. And that's a good thing. That's a good thing. Um, Paul is saying if Jesus isn't your only hope, um, there is no salvation. We've changed the gospel altogether. And if we change the gospel, then it's not the gospel. And it can't save. Because only the gospel can save. Okay, I'm going to keep moving here. Verse 4. <clears throat> but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. There's so much here. So that was 4 and 5. But So let's look at verse 4 first. 
But when the fullness of time had come, this was planned. This was not God at halftime, like the Vols saying, hey guys, why can't we stop them? Why can't we score, right? This isn't a, what's happening? We got to change the plan and come up with a better plan because this isn't working. This, this was not plan B. This was plan. When the fullness of time had, had come, God sent forth his son. Peter goes so far as to say in Acts 2, as he's preaching, he says, and Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed him, he goes on to say, but it was well known or understood that God sent forth his son, <clears throat> excuse me, this was his plan. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. God sent, that's important, the one, the righteous, holy judge, creator of all things, he is who has been offended. He is who has been sinned against. He's the one that sends his own son to take the punishment that the sins deserved. The, the judge comes down and takes the punishment of the offense. God sent his own son. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Incredible verse, 2 Corinthians 5.21. God sent Jesus to take on our sin. And now because Jesus was also fully human, we're getting to next, we, can, we are credited, those in Christ are credited with his righteousness. Called the great exchange. <clears throat> Essentially is the core of the gospel. <clears throat> God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law. Both of these are important. So um, Martin Luther has a lot on Galatians. <laughs> Very well-known um, theologian uh, in church history, but also specifically his work on Galatians is very well known. And I struggled with putting, you know, 20 quotes in here of, of his works on Galatians, but here's one I thought was really good and just said it much better than I could in this case. So Jesus says, or uh, Paul tells us, he was born of a woman, born under the law. Luther says, here Christ says, so by doing this, Christ is saying, come to me, all who labor under the yoke of the law. I could have overcome the law by my supreme authority without any injury to me, for I am Lord of the law, and therefore it has no jurisdiction over me. But for the sake of you who were under the law, I assumed your flesh and subjected myself to the law. That is, beyond the call of duty, I went down into the same imprisonment, tyranny, and slavery of the law under which you were serving as captives. I permitted the law to lord it over me, its lord, to terrify me, to subject me to sin, death, and the wrath of God, none of which it had any right to do. Therefore, I have conquered the law by a double claim. First, as the Son of God, the Lord of the law. Secondly, in your person, which is tantamount to your having conquered the law yourselves. Because Christ was human, that he fulfilled the law can now be credited to us if we are in Christ. This is massive, massive news. Because maybe you're like me, and right now you're sitting there and <laughs> maybe... Hearing this in, in your head, I don't know. I've never been all this worried about it, to be perfectly honest with you. I've never really. Okay, whatever you say. You, like me, just probably haven't thought about it enough. <laughs> um, 
the reason that all of this law stuff, the reason we don't really understand it, and maybe it's not striking us as hard as Paul is assuming it will, or Martin Luther is even speaking of, is because sometimes we kind of try to hide in the middle even, right? <laughs> um, we're really good at convincing ourselves we're basically good, you know, I know I'm not perfect. Nobody's perfect. That's easy to say. Everybody can say that. But we don't really mean we're really bad sinful either. Like, we're, I'm kind of in the middle, you know. Um, I'm basically good. I just choose to do a couple bad things. But really, even that is just for fun. It's just because I get bored sometimes. Uh, you know, I could stop that at any time. It's really no big deal. It's no problem. We're really good at convincing ourselves. We all know, we're smart enough to know, well, nobody's perfect. But we don't really understand the law enough to say, I am in trouble, <laughs> big trouble, apart from Christ. Another book um, I was really tempted to put a hundred quotes in here from, but I only got a couple. It's called Christless Christianity It's by Michael Horton. That should be required reading for the Bible Belt, but he says, the bad news is far worse than making mistakes or failing to live up to the legalistic standards of fundamentalism. It is at the best efforts of the best Christians, on the best days, in the best frame of mind and heart, with the best motives, fall short of that true righteousness and holiness that God requires. Our best efforts cannot satisfy God's justice. Yet the good news is that God has satisfied His own justice and reconciled us to Himself through the life, death, and resurrection of His Son. God's holy law can no longer condemn us because we are in Christ. <clears throat> This is major, major stuff for the, anyone. This is how we grow as Christians, is understanding this more and more and allowing it to change us more and more. <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> okay. Maybe, maybe you're kind of on the other side. And, <clears throat> no, I don't really understand the law. I know nobody's perfect, but we even make, and all of us have done this to some extent, but some people... Um, I think this, this hits even harder. We kind of make up our own law, right? We, <laughs> we say, well, I don't know about all of this stuff, but if, you, if you're a good person and you don't do this and you don't do this and you don't do this and you do this and you do this and you do this, and we could all give examples, but in our head we all kind of have this idea of what it really means to be a good person. We can't even keep that, right? We can't even keep our own law. And so... Some of you, some of us would say, you don't understand how bad I've messed up actually, Jay. I don't have a problem with knowing I've broken the law. That's not a problem for me. My problem is, how could God possibly love me after what I've done? I've broken it so bad that I'm too far gone. And that person is questioning the power of God and the promises of God. <clears throat> don't do that. <clears throat> God went to great lengths to secure our salvation. Um, one more quote from Luther here, and we'll move on. This is just such a big deal. Um, I don't want to rush. So the words, Christ was born under the law, are very meaningful and should be considered this way. For they indicate that the Son of God, who was born under the law, did not perform one or another work of the law or submit to it only in a political way, but that he suffered all the tyranny of the law. <coughs> All right, I got a tickle in my throat. For the law exercised its full function over Christ. It frightened him so horribly that he experienced greater anguish than any man has ever experienced. This is amply demonstrated by his bloody sweat, 
the comfort of the angel, his solemn prayer in the garden, and, and finally by that cry of misery on the cross. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? But he endured these things to redeem us who were under the law. <coughs> that is, those who were sorrowful, frightened, and desperate, who were burdened by sins, and for that matter, all of us still are. Thank you. <laughs> for according to the flesh, we, are st we still sin against all the commandments of God every day. But Paul commands us to have hope when he says, God sent forth his Son. God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law. To do what? Verse 5. To redeem those who are under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Sorry, that was going to be. <clears throat> God does the work of saving. God sent Jesus to redeem those who are under the law. So that we might receive adoption as sons. When we think of adoption, we all know what adoption means. And that's what Paul is getting at here. But in first century Rome, it was a little different in that two main ways. First, the adoptee, the one adopted in Rome, was usually an adult male. So when we think of adoption, right, we think of taking the baby home from the hospital, and the baby really never knows any different. First century Rome, it's normally an adult, normally a male. And the second, the reason, normally we do it uh, for whatever reason, but this place, I looked this up, was, uh, they said, nurture. In first century Rome, the reason for adoption was usually to pass on one's inheritance. So understand what Paul is saying here in this context. Paul didn't, God didn't excuse our sin. He doesn't sweep it under the rug, pretend that it didn't happen. He punished it to the full extent of the law, but he punished, he took it himself because he loves us, because we are his children. So think, think of another example here. This is from Russell Moore. Um, imagine for a moment that you're adopting a child. And as you meet with the social worker in the last stage of the process, you're told that the 12-year-old has been in and out of psychotherapy since he was three. He persists in burning things and attempting repeatedly to skin animals alive. He acts out sexually, the social worker says, although she doesn't really fill you in on what that means. She continues with a little family history this boy's father, grandfather, great-grandfather, great-great-grandfather all had histories of violence, ranging from spousal abuse to serial murder. Each of them ended their own lives. Think for a minute. Would you want this child? And where I, where I saw this was a commentary uh, that David Platt has written, and so then David Platt added, more identifies the potentially problematic 12-year-old. He's you. He's me. That's what the gospel is telling us. Praise God that there was nothing in us to draw him to us. God determined to redeem us. And lest that sound like an exaggeration of our evil and sinfulness, look at the cross. Look at the picture of God's wrath against sin. It was no minor offense for which Jesus, for which Jesus died. So if we're tempted to think, I'm not that bad, I've never really sinned that bad. Like, sure, I'm a sinner, I mess up every now, but I mean, not that big a deal. Look at the cross. Look at what Jesus endured so that we might be saved and adopted, redeemed. 
but don't miss the fact that he willingly did it. Right? So we both see God's wrath and God's love at the cross. It's where they meet in human history. And it changes everything. How are we doing? We're good. Okay. Verse 6. <clears throat> because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. <clears throat> so one quick thing on what this isn't, okay? I've heard uh, different things on this, but what, what it means to be able to say, Abba, Father. And that's a, Abba is a word in the original language, okay? And it, it does mean intimacy, and uh, we can approach God. But it does not mean <laughs> this somehow... Um, disrespectful in any way. It's not a, what's up, pops? You know, <laughs> that's not the idea here. And Paul is even saying, we're crying, Abba, Father. He says the same thing in Romans 8, verse 15, and probably thinking of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. In Mark 14, Mark tells us, uh, going a little further, Jesus fell on, his, fell on the ground and prayed, if it were possible, that the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. This is a relational, relational intimacy, a closeness with God when life is hard. A closeness with your dad when things get difficult. When you fall, when it all comes crashing down, this is a cry to God, help. Dad, help. This, this may seem like such a small thing. And to paraphrase Luther again, when, when we say it, we say, man, that's such a bad prayer. It's so, it's so, such a small thing, such a little thing. Luther says, this cry of ours far exceeds the cry of the devil. <laughs> this is a good prayer. Abba, Father, God, help. And just an example on this, just so y'all know, I, I sleep kind of about like a rock. Uh, Samantha can confirm both of our boys would probably would have starved to death by now. It had been up to me. Um, we live on the corner. I think a car could run into our house and just, hey, just head out. We'll clean it up in the morning. Let me go back to sleep if it woke me up at all. But here lately, uh, about sometime in the middle of the night, usually after midnight, kind of get this weird feeling and I open my eyes and there's another set of eyes right in front of my face, right? You <laughs> jump out of your skin and anyway, y'all know where I'm going. Somebody had a bad dream, right? Somebody's scared of the dark. And so what happens? Get out of here. What are you doing? No, no. Hey, buddy. That's, that's okay, buddy. Here, hop, hop in bed with dad. Or here, let me, let's go lay back down. I'll go with you. That's the access we have to the God of the universe. Paul is telling us, we have, we can cry, Abba, Father, God, I'm scared. I don't know what's going on. Now, that's, your own kids have that access, right, to you. <clears throat> if one of y'all's kids showed up in my house at 3 a.m., <laughs> that would be a little weird, right? Have to figure something out. Not with my son, right? Hey, that's my, that's my son. That's my job. That's what Paul is saying. That's the kind of access we have to God. 
He is our, we are his adopted children. We can go to him, and the Spirit helps us cry to him. <clears throat> Peter put it this way, casting all your cares, or another translation is anxieties, on him because he cares for you. Why is that so hard for us to believe? Right, that kind of easy to get the wrath stuff, right? We don't have any trouble with that. It's the, that he actually cares for us, that he actually loves, that we can really go to God with our mess, and he will not turn us away. He, he welcomes that. He knows what you're going through before you do. The Spirit is interceding on your behalf. Well, groans too deep for words. Why? So you're no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. Understand, we were, were slaves to sin. Slaves. Okay, I was going to spend a lot of time on that, but just don't have time. Now we are adopted as a son, and therefore an heir. Oh, that sounds really good. An heir to what? An heir to what? Romans 8, the Spirit himself bears witness to our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Okay, that still sounds good. What are you talking about? Hebrews 1, long ago at many times in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in the last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things. Psalm 24, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness of... What are you a co-heir with Christ of? Everything. Everything. This should completely change our perspective on this life, right? And... Um, have a really good example, but I'm, I'm too low on time. We still got a little bit to go here. Okay. We've gone from slavery to sonship, which means heir through God. Fellow heirs with Christ because of what he did for us. Verse 8. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. We've kind of already talked about that, so I want to finish up with nine. Through 11 here. But now that you have come to know God, or rather, to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? Uh, I don't know how this happened, but at some point, maybe it's because I'm getting older and kind of made the dad joke last time, but kind of getting into history a little bit. I don't know why. And I'm trying to make myself read a little more, a little less TV and phone time. So trying to read a little more. And don't really like reading fiction, so I compromise and started reading some biographies. I try to read one of those really big biographies each year. And just to pick one, for example, uh, Teddy Roosevelt. Uh, a few years ago, I couldn't now, but a few years ago I could tell you his wife's name, his kids' names, a um, little bit about his upbringing, a little bit about his time as a cowboy, a little bit about his time as a police officer, a little bit about how he became president, some things he dealt with, um, some things he liked to do, didn't like to do. I didn't know him. <laughs> now, obviously, he didn't know me. He's been dead for, you know, 150 years or so. Um, not that long. Anyway. Apparently, I'm not as good a student of history as I thought. Not that long. Anyway, the point is, so 
Honor in the last few weeks has mentioned Matthew 7 a few times, and I agree. That's some, of, that's some very scary verses. Right? These people are standing before God in this example Jesus is giving, and they say, and the judge says, I'm, <laughs> well, didn't we do this, and didn't we do this, and didn't we do this? And they cast out demons. I've never done that. They prophesied. I've never done that. They did many mighty works, it says. And what does the judge tell them? Depart from me. I never, I never knew you. I don't, I don't know who you are. So what did they do wrong? What did they get wrong? That's very important to understand and to know. Notice, and we don't have time to flip there, and we could do the whole, the whole sermon on this, but notice why they think God should let them into heaven. <laughs> what are they telling the judge? Why, why should I let you in? Just for, just for example, if the judge says, why should I let you into heaven? Their answer was, well, I've done this, and I've done this, and I've done, I've actually done many mighty works, so why wouldn't you? And what does he say? I don't, I don't know you. I never knew you. Notice what he doesn't say. The judge doesn't say, well, you were really close, but if you had just cast out a couple more, maybe if you had just done one more prophecy, or I don't know, if you prophesied something a little more important maybe, if you had just tried a little bit harder, he doesn't go there. He says, I don't know you. So what happens, we've been talking about adoption, what happens when you're adopted into a family? You love your dad and your dad loves you, right? Now, on this worldly, earthly experience we have, that's not always a perfect uh, situation or relationship, but in general, we should be very uh, thankful for being adopted into this family, right? And we have this relationship with our dad who loves us and went to great lengths to save us. So really the question, if the question is, why should I let you in? Why should you get into heaven? The question, <laughs> the answer is I shouldn't. You shouldn't. I don't deserve it. I've done nothing that would allow me in. But it's really not even heaven that we're after, is it? It's, we want God. We want a relationship with him. We want to know him and be known by him, which is what the people in Matthew 7 missed and what Paul is addressing here in verse 9. You have come to know God, or rather to be known by God. Why would you turn back? You know God. You have a relationship with Him. He knows you. We don't just want Dad's money, and I don't care if you die or not, just make sure you leave me the inheritance. That's not what we want. We want God. We want a relationship with our Father. Okay, let's wrap it up. 10 and 11. You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Quickly, why were they observing days and months and seasons and years? What does that even mean? They weren't Jewish. They get saved. And now all of a sudden, they're not eating certain things. They're being told or drifting towards having, having to be circumcised, following the Jewish calendar. So the question, none of those things in and of themselves was wrong. So why is Paul so worked up about this? It's because why they were doing it. They weren't doing it and I want to honor Christ with my life for what he's done for me. So now I'm going to do this, that or the other. What they were saying is that you have to do this now. Or else you're not really a Christian. We still have a sin nature. Number one. Number two. 
false teachers are leading them down this road. That's why it's so important that we know the Bible ourselves. I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Paul is not saying, hey guys, let's talk about this. Let's try to get this worked out. He's saying, I may have wasted, we may have all wasted our time. If you think you're adding anything to your own salvation, you've missed the whole thing. No, it's a good Baptist phrase. There's a lot of different ways to say it, but once saved, always saved, right? Well, how does that, what does that mean? How does that apply here? Why would he be telling them we've wasted our time? If you've been adopted, you cannot unadopt yourself, right? Um, you cannot lose your salvation. But you might be wrong about whether you have it to begin with. And thinking you have it doesn't mean you do. Trusting only in Jesus and being restored relationship with God through him alone is what it means to be a Christian, okay? And Paul is saying if you think you've even got 1% contributed to your own salvation, you've missed it. Man, I got a lot left. One thing, one interesting thing I will, I will mention you study the New Testament, Paul wrote a bunch of letters, right? And most of the time, and I'm no scholar here, but <clears throat> he's getting after the Galatians, right? What are you doing? Who has bewitched you? You foolish Galatians. Now, the Corinthians, for just take, for example, the Corinthians. They're dealing in... He's writing about... Don't do these sexual sins that I'm glad I don't have, I'm not a pastor so that I don't have to teach on because I would, I would just bless the whole time. Like, this is some pretty crazy stuff. He's telling the Corinthians, y'all need to stop doing this. He, and I'm not saying Paul doesn't care about the, or cares more about, but he's getting more fired up at the Galatians because they're trying to change the gospel. And if you change the gospel, Romans 1.16 the gospel is the power of salvation. It is the power of salvation. So if you change it, you miss the power of salvation. You miss salvation altogether. You cannot change the gospel. Okay. Take away three things. We'll wrap it up right here. <clears throat> First is, if you're like me, a couple things are running through your head when you go through Galatians, even read through Galatians, or much less hear a, hear a sermon about it, but why don't we really talk about this very much? Right? You don't... I think there's a couple reasons. Number one is, this is offensive, right? What Paul says in chapter 5 is the offense of the cross. You can't do it. You, I, can't do it. You can't get God to accept you. You can't do it. It does not matter if you have the most money... It, None of us have to worry about that. It, it doesn't matter if you have the most charming personality the world has ever known. And you have 5,000 Facebook friends. It doesn't matter how good you are at pulling yourself up by your own bootstraps, how much determination, how much work ethic. Apart from Jesus, you can't do it. Um, I love that if I teach my boys this stubborn determination, this stick to with a little skill and a little hard work, they can accomplish almost anything they want to in the economy of the United States. They've got the stubborn part down pat. It's the other stuff we're going to have to work on, right? 
that does not make a hill of beans of different in God's economy. You cannot work hard enough to earn God's favor. It's so offensive, right? What do you mean? I can do whatever I put my mind to. I can do it. It's so offensive to our, especially a red-blooded conservative Southern American. We're going to work hard and get it done. We don't like being given things. We want to go earn it. Don't give me a gift. Let me work for you, and then you can give it to me. Thank God for offending me through Paul's words to the Galatians. What's another reason why we don't hear this all that often? You can't preach that. You can't preach that. Are you serious? There's no telling what these people will go do if I tell them it doesn't matter what they do. You're crazy. They need to be challenged. They need to be pushed. Crack the whip. Have you ever noticed, though, um, when you and I struggle with legalism, we all drift this way sometimes. When we struggle with this, um, we become, if you're anything like me, very anxious. Uh, and especially if you're con- confronted with death in some way, or you go to a funeral. For me, you get on an airplane, right? It's like, oh no. <laughs> I don't know if I've been on enough mission trips. I might have skipped church too many times. And there's a couple times I didn't even have a good reason. I just skipped. Did I read my Bible enough? Did I pray enough? When I did pray, were they even sincere? Did I even mean it? Have I shared the gospel with enough people? It's exhausting, isn't it? And let me save you and I both some time here. You haven't. I haven't. You haven't done enough. You haven't. Another, I promise I'm wrapping it up. Uh, Michael Horton in that book calls it legalism light. He says, only those who are completely surrendered can be confident that they are God's plan A. Now here are the steps to the victorious Christian life. Are you following the steps? Do you have enough faith? Are you praying enough? Are you reading the Bible enough? Are you witnessing enough? Are you loving enough? This diet of imperatives becomes just as burdensome as the humans and human-centered as the older legalism. It's just legalism light. What did Jesus say? Now, yes, Jesus got after the Pharisees, okay? He was more blunt with them than with any other group. But he also said... Come to me, all who, are, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now, why would he say that? Paul addresses this very issue in Romans 6. He says, what shall we say? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means, how can we who died to sin still live in it? A study Bible right here said, uh, Paul is likely responding to a question posed regularly by his Jewish opponents. They did not raise this question so that they would have an excuse to sin, though in every age some have wrongly interpreted Paul's gospel of grace to rationalize sin. Instead, Paul's opponents argued that his gospel must be mistaken since, in their view, it led people to continue in sin. Paul will now show why their interpretation of his gospel is mistaken. Paul's gospel does not lead to more sin since those who belong to Christ have died to sin. goes on to say later, guys, I'm, I'm going way too fast. This is so important. Paul says, For sin will not rule over you because you are not under law but under grace. Romans 6.14. Incredible verse. The only way to actually defeat sin is to admit that you can't defeat sin and trust in Christ and look to Christ and understand that He did it for you, and that changes you in a way where you don't want to sin. It's not that I have to try real hard not to sin. I, 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 
realize that my love for Christ is stronger than my love for sin. And over time, that gap gets even wider. Okay. Application. This is, that was number one. Two more things. They're not nearly as long. Second thing that I hope you take away this morning is I hope you're encouraged, if nothing else. Uh, we need daily reminders of this. So important to remind yourself of this daily through God's Word. We don't get the gospel, believe, and then move on to the deeper, more important things. It's the whole thing. It's not just how we're saved, it's how we're sanctified. How, that's why Paul asked rhetorically in verse, or chapter 3, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? You got saved by this miraculous work of the Spirit, and now you're going to take it from here? No, no, it's the same way. Since our faith is threatened by our natural tendency to be distracted from its object, Christ, we need the gospel placarded before us, not just at the beginning, but throughout the Christian life. The gospel is for Christians too. We need to be evangelized every week. It is not by following Christ's example, but by actually being inserted into Christ, clothed with Christ, united to Christ, as the Spirit creates faith through the gospel that we are not only justified, but sanctified as well. Sanctification is growing in Christ-likeness. And that's the third and final thing. I promise there's the last point. If you can take one thing away, take away this. You can just tell me later that you remember this. You can have ignored the rest. The order matters. The order of things matters. So if I said, you know what, I'm going to sum up the Christian life. I'm going to say, and this is from Tim Keller. I've been, he's been listening to a lot of his podcast on Galatians. This, but if I said to you, the Christian life is basically believe, work hard, and be saved, Let's not waste so much time with all these details and theology and the Bible. Just believe in God. Jesus died for my sins. Work real hard and it'll all work out in the end. I could probably be convinced of that if a smart enough person tried. We, you could probably be convinced of that if I tried hard enough. Believe, work hard, get saved. That's not it. It's believe and you're saved, period. And then we work hard. Yes, we work hard. Paul goes on to talk about in chapter 5, he lists these sins and says, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. God Paul isn't saying don't worry about sin. But he is very, very clear on believe and you're saved, period. And then you work hard. John 6, Jesus says, uh, they, these people come up to Jesus. John 6 is an incredibly hard chapter, but this is one of my... <laughs> favorite version of all the Bible, they, they come to Jesus and they say, what must me do to be doing the works of God? Jesus, I'm in. Just tell me what to do. I'll go do it. Let me have it. What do we got to do? And in my head, if you were making a movie, there would be this big drum roll, right? Like, all right, this is it. This is Jesus himself answering the question, what is the work of God? This is it. This is it. This is it. Jesus answered, and this is the work of God. You believe in him who he has sent. Period. End of the answer. Believe. Believe in me. And now, what is it we believe about him? And our culture is confusing. Anyway, we believe and we're saved, period. And yes, we work hard. And we, we grow by deepening our relationship with God through Christ. All right, I'm still cutting out. I'm over. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to end you in this, end our time together. Romans 8, 32. Romans 8 is a very powerful chapter. Paul says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? You've been adopted into the family of God. You're a co-heir with Christ of all things. 
Well, Jacob, how can I know? How can I be sure? How, can we, how do we know this for sure? God's promised it. And he sent his only son, not as a backup plan, as plan A, to be brutally tortured to accomplish this for us. How the hard part's over for me. <laughs> All right. Let me pray for us and fill up. You guys want to make up. Heavenly Father, I thank you for our time together. I thank you for your word. And then over and over and over again, we're reminded because we need to be reminded over and over and over again of how good you are to us, what you've done through what you've done for us through your son Jesus Christ. I pray we would put all of our hope in that, not most of it, not 99.9%, 100% of our hope would be in Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, for your glory alone, according to your word alone. Help us grow, help us grow not by white knuckle determination, but by growing nearer to you through Christ, deepening our love for you and loving you more than we love our sin. Help us do that. Send us the Spirit to cry to you when we fall short. Help us to run to you. Um, thank you that we can. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.